we have been looking at the signs of Christ's coming, and signs are important. I mean, signs are very important, especially when you're driving a car. You know, a yield sign is very important, and it tells you to, hey, you need to slow down and look for oncoming traffic. A stop sign is very important because it's not a yield sign. Although some people believe a stop sign is a yield sign, that just means you just kind of slow down. But no, you're actually supposed to come to a complete stop and wait your turn to continue on. Uh, curve up ahead, that's an important sign. Uh, speed limit 30 is an important sign, especially going through like a school zone or after you've been going 55 miles an hour and now it's speed limit 30. These are important things. And if we choose to ignore those signs, it could be dangerous even fatal. When you first learned to drive, it was drilled into you. Watch the signs. Pay attention to the signs because signs help prepare us for what is ahead. And what is true physically is also true spiritually. Chapters 24 and 25 are traditionally called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is teaching from the Mount of Olives. And his disciples come to him and ask him two questions. What will be the sign of your coming, and when will it happen? We are now in our fourth week of this end-of-the-age series within the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus has already answered the what question that the disciples have asked him. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And he said, well, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence and earthquakes and false messiahs. These are the labor pains leading up to his return. These are the key indicators, and, and that we looked at those as being the beginning of this time called the Great Tribulation. I also pointed out that before that time of Great Tribulation begins, that Jesus will remove his church in what is called the rapture, uh, referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. That event, coupled with the removing of the restrainer, which is the Holy Spirit, from the earth will open the door. So you're removing the church. The church is gone. The Holy Spirit is removed, opening the door for this seven-year great tribulation period. And we also have also seen that the first three and a half years of that will actually be years of peace. It'll be a false peace, but there will be a world leader who comes on the scene and brings about this global peace. He's going to make a covenant with Israel. Israel's going to fall for it. And for those first three and a half years, Israel is going to believe this is their Messiah. Uh, but Scripture calls him something else, the Antichrist. And after the three and a half years, or right in the middle of that seven-year tribulation period, this man will go into the temple, the rebuilt temple, stop the sacrifices that are taking place, and proclaim himself to be God and demand that everyone worship him. This is what Jesus called the abomination of desolation. We saw that in verse 15. And then from verses, verses 16 to 18, we saw the worldwide persecution. But then after all that, as we approach the very end of the Great Tribulation, verse 29, uh, Jesus says that then there will be total darkness. There will be all these signs in the heavens, and then the sign of signs, verse 30, Jesus Christ will return. So Jesus has answered their what question, what will be the sign of your coming? But he's also begun to move into the area of answering the when question, when will it happen? And in verses 32 through 35, Jesus gave the analogy of the fig tree, saying, when its branches 
when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And he then says, the generation that sees these signs, sees these things, they will see my coming. But though Jesus gives us a general timeline, he doesn't give the exact time. He tells us how to discern the season, but not the exact day or hour. And that is significant to understand the verses that we're going to look at here this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 36, where Jesus continues to talk about the end of the age, and he addresses the need for spiritual preparedness, or to be prepared, if you want a subtitle for this message, to be prepared. As a Boy Scout, you might know that. Be prepared. That's the Boy Scout motto. Well, that's what Jesus calls us to as believers, to be prepared. And first we see to be prepared, we need to be watchful. Be watchful, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So there will be all these signs pointing to his imminent return, but the exact time, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. That's pretty amazing because the angels have a special relationship with God. There are passages that tell us that they hover around the throne of God. They do God's bidding. And we've seen that God uses the angels at the end of the age to gather the believers when he returns. Yet in God's sovereign plan, he has chosen to not even let them know when he's returning. But think about this. The angels are excited with anticipation about Christ's arrival. They, they too are excited about that just as we are. But not only that, Jesus says, no one knows but my Father only, which means Jesus himself does not know. You're like, what? He's, how could that be? He's God, right? He's 100% God. Yes, but he's also 100% man. And in his humanity, he voluntarily restricted himself from knowing the day or the hour. And if Jesus himself didn't know the day and hour, at least he didn't during his earthly ministry, then how foolish it is for any of us to think that we can predict the day or hour regarding this prophetic timetable. So the disciples asked, when are you coming? And he says, no one knows the exact hour, but you will certainly see signs that will indicate that it's coming soon. Unfortunately, most people won't change even then because Jesus gives an analogy here of Noah to describe what the day and hour will be like. Verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, first, I want you to notice Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. The one who is described in Daniel chapter 7 as the one uh, given an eternal kingdom. And with that identification, he's claiming to be the rightful king over all. And when the king or the son of man comes, it will be as the days of Noah were. The general attitude of people during the time of the Great Tribulation, seeing all of these radical signs, will be the same as the days of Noah. Well, what were the days of Noah like? Well, we can see in Genesis chapter 6, we get uh, several indicators. Genesis 6 verse 1. It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. There was this increase in population. It's maybe hard to recognize or, or understand, but the, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, 
1,600 years have passed from the creation of Adam and Eve. That that much time has passed before the flood comes. There have been studies done to try to estimate the population at the time before the flood. It's a wide range, but some, as, as many as 1 billion people to 4 billion people. And the way you get that high of a number is because of the lifespan that people were living. So over 1,600 years, but people were living seven, eight, nine hundred years. They were living long periods of times. if you take the scriptures literally, which I do, which is what it says. So you can get up to one, between one and four billion people. Currently, we have eight billion people on the planet. We just passed that number fairly recently. By 2050, they estimate 9 to 10 billion people and 12 billion or more by the end of the century. But here's the thing. As the Earth, Earth's population exploded in number, it also exploded with evil. That's the second thing. There was an increase in wickedness. And when I refer to the wickedness, I'm referring to man's wickedness and even demonic fallen angel wickedness that was taking place on the Earth. Genesis 6 verse 2 the sons of God, that is typically understood to be the angels, specifically fallen angels, sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of, of all whom they chose. Jump down to verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. But between those two verses, verse 3, God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. So there was great wickedness taking place on the earth. Um, there's other passages you can look at in Jude that give more description of what is taking place. But there's great evil, and there was also an increase of violence, Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And prior to the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ, this world will be epitomized by great wickedness, violence, and evil. One more thing that the comparison is, there, it was a time of unheeded preaching. Noah preached for 120 years to the people of that time about what was coming but they didn't believe him. Granted, he did look ridiculous. I mean, he was building a boat in the land of Iraq. He's out there building a boat in the middle of nowhere, uh, and he's saying, the flood is coming, the flood is coming. They had no idea what a flood was. I mean, rain was, was, was this whole concept was foreign to them. It didn't make sense to people, so they didn't listen to it. They just kept on going about their lives. They were content with their wickedness. Their hearts were hard and their ears were dull. No one repented and no one cared and no one sought God in those days. Verse 38, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. People were just going about their lives eating, drinking, marrying. It was business as usual. And the people ignored Noah until the day Noah entered the ark. Oh, that's the day things changed when he entered the ark. 
verse 39, it says, they, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Everyone except Noah's wife, his sons, and their, their wives, eight people, except for them, they ignored it. Everyone else ignored what he was saying until it was too late. And the people realized God's judgment was upon them. And the flood came swiftly and took them all away. That's key. We'll come back to the, those words there. But in the days of Noah, everyone was warned and warned and warned over and over again. And eventually it came. And for those who ignored the warnings, it came suddenly and expectedly, unexpectedly. And in the same way, when Christ returns to the earth as the Son of Man, as the King, he will bring judgment upon them and he will bring judgment with him. Verse 39, they did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of, of Man, or will the coming of the Son of Man be. Even though the signs of his coming will be obvious to anyone who's paying attention, no one's paying attention. Very few will be looking. People living during the time of the Great Tribulation that we've been looking at, they will see all the signs that Jesus has been talking about in this chapter. And like the days of Noah, they will have plenty of time to repent, but most will reject the truth. And Jesus now gives this analogy, verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. So this is normal life. Men working out in the field, women working at home, one taken, one left. Now, I will say at this point, theologians differ on the interpretation of these verses. On the surface, you might read this and say, well, this looks a lot like the rapture. One's taken, one's left. But based on the context this is not referring to being taken in the rapture, but being taken away in judgment. And I'm going to give you several reasons why. First, back in verse 39, it says, They did not know until the flood came and took them away. Who was taken away? Those taken in judgment. Unbelievers. Who was left behind? Noah and his sons. Believing Israel. And then at verse 40, you see that word, then? That connects verses 39 to verses 40 and 41. So to get the rapture out of this is to bifurcate verses 40 and 41 from verse 39. And to say this is a, re a reference to the rapture is to ignore everything we've studied in the previous verses of chapter 24. So here, being taken away is not a good thing. Being left behind is a good thing in this context. So what is described here is not the rapture. It's the opposite of the rapture. I'll continue. Let me give you some more reasons. To interpret these two verses as being a reference to the rapture is to be out of harmony with the rest of the parables in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 13, you read several parables, and who is taken away? Well, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the tares are gathered first at the harvest time and then burned. And then the wheat was gathered for the barn. In the parable of the dragnet, the bad was taken away or thrown away first. That's the wicked. Throw them into the furnace of, 
of fire. And then we'll get to in chapter 25, verse 41, the, the sheep and the goats. The goats are taken away and the sheep enter into the kingdom. And the best one of all, I believe, is in Luke's parallel passage. Luke's parallel passage in chapter 17, verses 27 to 37, it says, where those are taken go, destruction. They are taken to violent judgment. So then what is Jesus talking about here? The second coming. That is the context of what he's been talking about. When Jesus comes in his second coming, well, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken, the other left. And those taken are taken into judgment. When Christ comes, he is separating the wheat from the chaff, and those taken are taken to judgment. And those left are, are left to enjoy the kingdom with Jesus Christ in the millennial reign, moving into the millennial reign. Now, you may be just like, I don't know about all that, Pastor. I don't, it still looks like the rapture to me. Either way, it's okay. We can disagree on that. It's not a salvation issue. But here's the point. Be ready. Be ready. Either way, here's Jesus, and here's the main application, verse 42. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. By the way, I've already been talking about the rapture throughout this series. I definitely believe in the rapture of the church, but those verses are not the rapture of the church. I'll, I'll move on. Watch. The word watch. Now, this word in the original language is in the present imperative, meaning there needs to be this continual expectation because you don't know when the Lord is coming. You will see the signs of the season, and I've given you the chronology of events leading up to my coming, but you don't know what hour, so be watchful. So those who are living at the time of the great tribulation better be watchful. They're seeing all these signs, so be watchful. And this does apply to us in the sense that Jesus could come for his bride at any time. That's what differentiates the rapture from the second coming. Nothing has to happen prophetically for the rapture to, to take place. So we need to be ready at any time. We're to always be ready. Well, Jesus now uses a different analogy that goes hand in hand with the previous exhortation to be watchful, where he says now to be ready, verse 43 and verse 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what the hour or what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Now, obviously, Jesus, Jesus is not comparing his character to that of a thief. He's referring to the manner of his arrival at the second coming to that of a thief. And how, how do thieves arrive? Well, if they're any good, unexpected. I mean, if a thief was going to break into your house, he wouldn't canvas the neighborhood, handing out flyers, letting everybody know, announcing, hey, we're, you're going to be robbed tonight. And by the way, you know, if you wouldn't mind, go and gather your valuables, put them in the front, front room of your house, leave your door unlocked just to make it easier for me. No, that's not going to happen. A thief is going to come when you least expect him to come. And because of that, be ready. We have other passages encouraging the same thing. Revelation 3, verse 3, If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And then later in Revelation 16, verse 15, Behold, I am coming 
How? As a thief. Blessed is he who watches. So watch. So not knowing the exact time of our Lord's arrival, he then says, verse 44, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here is the principle. The Bible's revelation of the world's consummation should bring godly motivation. Don't worry, I'll say that again. The Bible's revelation of the world's consummation should bring godly motivation. Our hearts continuing, just desiring what God wants, mindful of, of the Lord. Here's the thing. There are, there are things you know as a Christian. As a believer, you know what is coming. The world doesn't know that all this is coming. Even when you tell them and they go, yeah, whatever, they don't believe it. Like in the days of Noah, right? They dismiss it. But you know better. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So unbelievers, they don't see it. They aren't watching for it. But you see what others don't see. I, I hope that's true. I hope that you see it. You and I see by prophetic scripture what no one else is seeing. Therefore, if anyone should be ready and involved and passionate in our daily living, it should be us that we see it. So Jesus says, be watchful. He says, be ready. And finally, be faithful. And he gives another analogy communicating the same idea. Verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. So Jesus uses this analogy about stewardship, and what he's essentially saying is that everyone has been entrusted with a stewardship from God, believers and unbelievers alike. Now, what is the stewardship? God made humanity in his image, and he has blessed us, the, the, the rain uh, falls upon the just and the unjust. We all receive the same blessing of sunshine. We, we're all blessed, and we've all been given the stewardship to follow him, to serve him, to know him, and to be faithful in the earth. In this analogy, though, you have this servant. He's given the stewardship of his master's household to keep everything in order. And again, this speaks of the common opportunity for all to serve the Lord and to know him. And Jesus says, verse 46, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. So the master put him in charge of his household, and then he leaves. He has business to do elsewhere, and he returns and finds that this servant has been faithful and wise. He's serving his master. He knows the master. He loves the master. Assuredly, verse 47, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Jesus promised that we would be rewarded for our diligence. We have eternal rewards in heaven. The servant serves the master, but the master also knows how to take care of and reward the servant. But, verse 48, now we have a different servant here, but if the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards. So here's this guy who says, hey, my master is gone, let's party. Uh, and his master has been gone a long time. 
So he takes advantage of the situation, even beating up his fellow servants and indulging himself with the food and drink of his master. He is taking advantage of his master and all of his household servants and even the master's possessions. He's just making himself at home. The evil servant, who was not ready for the master's return, sinned in at least three ways that we see here. One, he was not about the business of his master. He was thinking of himself. Two, he fought with and mistreated his fellow servants. And three, he gave himself to the pleasures of the world instead. Those are three areas where we must keep guard today and guard against. Not that we as believers lose our salvation, but we can certainly lose reward. We must be about the Father's business. Be about the business of our master. We, to treat fellow servants with respect and love and not give ourselves to the pleasures of this world. And there's an urgency in the appeal from Jesus here as he's presenting this. You know, it's been said that the most dangerous lie from the enemy is not there is no God and it's not there is no hell, but the most dangerous lie of Satan is there's no hurry. Just keep waiting. You can put it off. No, we need to be ready for the imminent return of Jesus Christ, whether we're waiting for the rapture or for those living in this, these times in the great tribulation for his return. Be ready for his return. Be found faithful when he comes. Continuing on verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, is that how God deals with believers? No. This is clearly unbelievers he's talking about in these verses. This parable gives us the distinction between a person who serves God in faith versus the person who is out of faith. I know there are people who say this is the church, this is the Bema seat judgment of Christ where he's judging our works. But this is not punitive damages for the believer being described here. Let me, let me comfort some people this morning. You're not going to get beat up and cut up at the Bema seat of Christ. Your works will be judged, but that, this is not describing salvation or eternal salvation. Your salvation is is secure as a believer. And I know some Christians live in constant fear because they've been taught and mistaught regarding even using the verses like this about what it's like at the end. That's, that's not the case. Jesus is talking about the fact that when he comes in judgment, he will separate the unbelievers and put them in a place where there will where the hypocrites are, and where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a place called hell. That's the description of hell, this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And unfortunately, like it or not, hell is a biblical word. It's a word that means different things to different people. People use it in different ways. But Jesus uses the word to describe the eternal destiny of those who reject him. I know some people think the word hell nowadays, well, that's hate language. How dare you talk about a place like that, outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, hell. Or they ask, 
why would a loving God send anyone to hell? And why would a God of love even create such a place for people? Listen, God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go there by their own choice. Because I want to show you this. Here is God's heart regarding this. And it's found in many places in Scripture. But here's what God says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. He says, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. It's as if God is weeping over this. He's pleading. Even for someone who is wicked, God says, I don't want to see them perish but that they would turn from their evil ways and live. That's God's heart. That's God's desire. He says, turn, which for the theological, other biblical word, repent. Repent means to have a change of mind, to turn from your old ways, to turn to Jesus Christ. Turn so that you can be with me. That's why I sent my son to die, that you might have new life. And then in the New Testament, that's an Old Testament passage, but the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that all men be saved. That is his heart. That's his desire. But God won't force you. God doesn't strong arm you into the kingdom. He gave you free will. We all have free will. Everyone has a choice. We have a choice to, to believe and trust and receive Jesus or to not believe and to not trust and to reject Jesus. You know, I've done both. For time, There's a time in my life where I lived like, well, I'm not believing that. That's, that's not for me or at least not right now. I'm not trusting in Jesus. I'm, I'm rejecting that right now until there came the point where I got to the end of all that and said, okay, I've tried it my way for a long, long time. I trust you. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you died for me and my sins. So that I, there was a change where I did believe and I did trust and I did receive Jesus. Now, once that happened, when I received Christ into my heart, the New Testament tells us how the work of the Holy Spirit works in our lives. When I trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt me. And Scripture says we are then sealed by the Holy Spirit. So I now have had the Holy Spirit in me even when I disobey, even when I grieve the Spirit, I'm grieving the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit will not leave me. So I made that choice to believe, to trust, and receive. And I receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some might say, well, you know, I haven't made a choice for Jesus. I'm not really for him or against him. I'm just undecided right now, kind of like in the middle, kind of like some people who go to college and their, their major's undecided. You can do that for, a, what, a couple of years, and eventually you've got to decide. To make no decision is to make a decision of no. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. There's still a choice to be made. There's no middle ground. So first of all, God doesn't send anyone to hell. He desires that all come to repentance, that all be saved. But many people of their own volition choose it, and they reject Jesus Christ. 
Now, it's also important to understand that God didn't create hell for people. Did you know that? Hell was created for Satan and his fallen angels. It tells us that Satan rebelled against God and he drew one-third of the angels with him. We now call those demons, fallen angels, but that's what they are. And what Satan chose to then do was to deceive Adam and Eve and just to rip off God's people, God's creation, those created in the image of God. And so here you have this place of hell created for Satan and his demons, and God desires that no man go there. But the problem is when Christ comes and men of their own volition choose to serve Satan, whether it's knowingly or unknowingly, because they've been deceived by Satan, and that's what the Satan does. He deceives people to where they say, well, I don't want Jesus. I don't care about Jesus. I'm not concerned about those things. That doesn't make sense. I'm good enough on my own. What more can the Lord do when he returns to the earth? So Jesus is re- reminding his disciples and us that when he returns, he will just judge the earth and those who reject him. Okay, but what about those who are faithful? We looked at the faithful servant. Well, in the story, the unfaithful will be separated and appointed their portion with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But what about those who are serving Jesus when he returns? Well, that's, that's the good part. There will be rewards. In the book of Revelation, John, he's writing down what Jesus is telling him and the things that Jesus is showing him. And Jesus is talking about the overcomer. And he who overcomes is the believer, one who has trusted in Jesus Christ. Revelation 2 verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So what Adam and Eve gave up, God is going to recreate on the earth. The book of Isaiah tells us that the lion and the lamb will lay down together. It's paradise 2.0 or, or the garden 2.0. We're going to experience that. Revelation 2 verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we're going to be sinless in heaven, and we're going to be given a new name. As you read throughout the Bible, God would at certain times change people's names. You're not Jacob anymore, you are Israel. You are not Abram anymore, you are Abraham. You're, You're not just an exalted father, you're a father of many nations. You're not, just, you're not Simon anymore, you're Peter. You're not Saul anymore, you are Paul. I don't know what my new name is going to be, but I can't wait to, to hear it. That's going to be great. That's exciting. Well, here's another one. Continuing on verse, in Revelation 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Our names are written in the book of life. And if you've trusted Christ for salvation, it will not be blotted out. It can't be erased. It will be there forever. And Jesus is continually speaking our name to the Father, saying, well, he's mine. She's mine. You're you're mine. He knows our names, and he's speaking them before the Father. Revelation 3, verse 12. 
It says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, a pillar speaks of, of something strong and stable, immovable. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. That's, Jesus is going to have a new name too. So I have a new name and his name is written on us. The, the city of God and the name of my God. Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now that's incredible. The Lord says, hey, come sit with me on my throne. I don't know how that's all going to work out, how, how we're all going to sit on his throne at, at the same time, or if we just take turns. I don't know how this is going to work, but that's what it says. And then back here in Matthew 24, Jesus is giving these analogies or, or parables for those who will be going through the great tribulation to be watchful, to be ready, and to be faithful, to be prepared for his arrival. Listen, the second coming of Jesus Christ will be unmistakable. It will be a visible return, like lightning uh, flashing across the sky against a pitch black backdrop. It will, every, everything is darkened, but we shouldn't expect to know exactly when he will, will return. So in the meantime, we're called to live in continual obedience and faithfulness, always ready for his return. Are you living in light of the reality that Jesus could come back at any moment? Are you prepared? There's only one way to be spiritually prepared there's only one way to be prepared for when Jesus comes. That's to have a heart that belongs to him. That's where it starts. Having a heart that belongs to him. If you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross on your, for your behalf, on your behalf, that he shed his blood for you, and you receive his payment for sin on your behalf, and you do it by faith, that you believe Jesus is the son of God, that he, he died, he was buried, and rose again, that's where you begin. Believe. Believe in him. But don't delay because you never know when your time is up. Vance Havner, he's a, a Bible commentator. He was exploring a museum exhibit titled A Day in Pompeii. And he was struck by the repeated theme that he saw about how August 24th of 79 AD began as an ordinary day that people were just going about their daily business in their homes, in the markets, and even at the port of this prosperous Roman town of 20,000 people. At 8 a.m., a series of small emissions were seen coming from Mount Vesuvius, followed by a violent eruption in the afternoon. Less than 24 hours later, Pompeii and many of its people were buried under a thick layer of volcanic ash. Unexpected. So be prepared for any event, whether it's your death or the coming of the Lord in whatever capacity that is. Have a heart that belongs to him and have a heart that longs for him, where you're longing for him, saying, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come, Lord, come. 
It's like the woman who was waiting at the airport for her fiance to come. He was flying in and they were going to get married. And she's there, she's waiting for the flight to arrive, waiting uh, for the plane. She's, she's looking, she's listening, longing for him to show up. Well, the air traffic controller was also there. He had the radar, he had the schedule of flights and he's watching all of this. He knew about the facts of the plane coming but he was not expecting like she was expecting. He was not longing like she was longing. She was like her, for her, her bridegroom was on the plane. Her heart longed for that plane to arrive. May we have that same heart as that young lady, longing for his arrival, having a heart that belongs to him and a heart that longs for him. Because the reality is, eternity is very real. Heaven is is real. Hell is real. So don't delay, but be prepared. Let's pray.